welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Lucy Bradley. Have you ever wondered what work doctors might be doing when they aren't seeing patients? Approximately 10% of doctors are clinical academics or clinical researchers, and they divide their time between seeing patients and doing research. I travel down to the centre of London to the spring meeting of the Academy of Medical Sciences. And this is an annual conference which brings together trainee clinician researchers from across the UK to present their research. The meeting is also an opportunity for these doctors to meet each other and exchange ideas. I spoke to some of the participants who told me what the meeting means to them. This meeting is such an amazing opportunity for clinician scientists to come along, see each other's work, rub shoulders with the great and the good in academic medicine. And really the main thing about this meeting that I love is it's so nurturing. These meetings are always very important for collaborating uh, with colleagues and, and finding out what people are doing in other areas of research which actually might have implications for what you do. And I find that at all these meetings we always are able to meet people who can enhance each other's research. I think meeting other people who are research active and sharing with them the sort of frustrations and the joys of research, I think it's just quite nice to get together irrespective of what your specific field is. I'm finding such a breadth of research going on, it's really nice to see what other people are doing and gain different perspectives. This is my first spring meeting. It's a different audience to what I'm used to. It's mainly doing networking, so it's about looking at different ideas and working out other ways you can collaborate and do um, research that can improve on your practice in different ways. Today, I already referred to talk about the pharmaceutical industry, which I have to admit my biases towards being very negative about, but it's really made me think about some of the benefits one might get from interacting more closely with, with um, the pharmaceutical industry. And also, I've had some really good chats with people about this poster and some suggestions on their part about other things we could look at. So that, that's been really useful. Well, I think it's just an opportunity to meet people you don't expect you're going to meet. It's a very friendly atmosphere and there's a lot of collaboration. So it's about meeting people you don't know and seeing techniques you don't know. Before going to speak to them about their research, I asked John Took, President of the Academy of Medical Sciences, to explain a bit more about the importance of the meeting and who it's for. The spring meeting for clinician scientists in training is an incredibly important event uh, from the Academy of Medical Sciences perspective. Some 50% of our fellowship are doctors who undertake medical science and this particular meeting is aimed at supporting the particular needs of those who are medically qualified and who are pursuing a career both as a clinician and as an academic scientist. Many of the challenges come from combining those two roles and of course the academic role is complex in itself because it involves teaching and research and as one advances up the career ladder, often you can throw in administration and management into, into the mix as well. And what is one of the great benefits of being in both camps, being a practitioner and a researcher? That's a very good question and I see the most important advantage of being in both camps is that your research is informed by genuine clinical need and that's important on, on many levels. It's incredibly important to 
understand that need very closely and it's only by being close to what matters to patients that you can really address the issues that are going to improve their experience, their capacity to cope with an, with an illness. Second, I think that a lot of medical advance comes from understanding or observing firsthand the extremes of presentation of particular conditions. It's often the case that rare diseases will give remarkable insight into the mechanisms which are of more generic significance to pathology. And it's only by being clinically connected and actually having significant commitment to clinical activity that you come across those infrequent occurrences. Now it's time to go and see some of the actual research that's being exhibited this spring. I'm just entering the room now where all the posters are exhibited. As you can probably hear, there's a lively and buzzing atmosphere full of people. So let's go and take a look. Uh, so my name is Dr Katie Marwick. I'm a psychiatry trainee, so I've been qualified as a medical doctor for five years. But I'm also um, pursuing a career in medical research. And my poster today is about sensitivity to cuteness in baby faces and how this is not influenced by being pregnant. So I was interested in this because of the possible link between reproductive hormones and postnatal depression. We felt if it was possible that the ability to tell the cuteness of baby faces apart was a response of the brain to reproductive hormones, it may be that if the response during pregnancy was not what was normal, that could perhaps predict a risk for postnatal depression. That was why I was particularly interested in it. In front of me I've got your poster and there are two pictures of the same baby side by side. So who decided which face was the cuter face and how did he decide? That's the question that everybody asks. It's the, the power of the human eye, basically. We got a sample of baby photos and then got a group of women and men, young and old, about 40 people, to just rate the face. How cute is this baby? And you think it might be quite subjective, but actually everybody agreed. There are very strong correlation. Um, it's a statistical test to check how strong the agreement was. So, in fact, there, there are underlying principles that everyone does find cute. It tends to be having big eyes, uh, having eyes not more than halfway up the face, nice nice rounded cheeks, small nose, small mouth. If you think of Mickey Mouse, those kind of features, without, without the big ears. <laughs> and really furry. Um. <laughs> well, we've been looking at cuteness discrimination, so that's not how cute you find a face, but if you've got two faces side by side, can you tell which is the cuter? been able to use computer software to morph babies' faces to be more cute or less cute. You can make that a big difference or a small difference. If it's a big difference, anyone can do it. But if you make it really subtle, we start to find that men just can't tell the difference between the two pictures of a baby. But women remain able to do it at quite a, quite a subtle distinction. And interestingly, premenopausal women are better than postmenopausal, and women on the pill are better than women off the pill. So that made us think that reproductive hormones like oestrogen, progesterone, may be important in determining the ability to tell the cuteness of baby faces apart. That led us to think about pregnancy. Pregnancy is a time where naturally these reproductive hormones vary substantially. Oestrogen goes up 50-fold, progesterone about 12-fold. So if it really is these hormones that are important in helping you tell the cuteness of baby faces apart, you'd expect women to get much better at it as pregnancy progresses. 
So we got a group of lovely pregnant ladies who agreed to let us visit them four times, twice during pregnancy and twice after, and went went through our test procedure, which is looking at 100 pairs of baby faces and pointing to the cuter one. And we were able to get a measure of how accurate they were at distinguishing the cuteness. But what we found was unexpected in that, in fact, there was no difference across pregnancy and after delivery. And we also compared them with a group of people who weren't pregnant, also young women, matched for age and number of children, etc. And there was no difference between them and the women who were pregnant either, despite these large differences in levels of reproductive hormone. Given the fact we didn't find the link we expected, it's probably not simply that higher levels of hormone make you better. It's probably more complicated. So did the inspiration for this research stem from your experience as a practitioner? To be completely frank, I just thought cute babies sounded really interesting. So as a clinician researcher, for you, what's the most important thing about being in both camps? seeing patients and doing the research? Well, I'm going to be a psychiatrist and we don't really know why we get many of the disorders that so badly affect the patients that I care for. Um, and I think we're starting to chip away about the causes and mechanisms. And I think finding out more about that really gives me hope that we can improve the lives of people that are, are so devastated by severe mental illness. I think I'm, I might find it harder to go to clinic every day and do the treatment if I didn't feel at the back of my mind were making progress for the future for these people. I'm Dr Paul Pfeffer, a clinical training fellow. My project is looking at whether vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, can protect against air pollution that might otherwise drive asthma. So we know asthma is a disease that's increasing globally across the world, and the question is why, and we think it's environmental factors, and two ones that we know are important are vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, and air pollution. And this particular research is looking at the cells lining the lungs to see the effect of vitamin D on those cells, as opposed to many other cells that are involved in asthma. So where did your interest for this project originate? My interest in asthma comes from my clinical side. It's a disease which I think is undertreated. There isn't enough research into it and where you can really make benefit to the patients if you treat it correctly. I approached some people who are in the field at the MRC and Asthma UK Centre and that's really how led into this project, looking at the form of vitamin D. And then I really chose air pollution because it's something that stimulates our lungs every day outside. A lot of people use other types of cell stimulation that really are quite artificial, whereas pollution is real. If you go outside on a smoggy day, you'll breathe in loads of it. So what did you discover? What were your findings? And what is the significance of your results? So what we found is that air pollution being inhaled by the lungs, certainly in our cell cultures, causes them to release chemicals that we know would otherwise drive asthma attacks. And that vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin, added to these cultures can reduce some of these inflammatory chemicals. The significance is if we can target these pathways, we can treat asthma, but also hopefully be able to reduce the amount of asthma and hopefully with a relatively simple intervention of giving vitamin D or something very similar to vitamin D. The idea is to keep it nice and simple but effective. So I look at different types of vitamin D because there's lots of different types, lots of different doses. You can get it from the sunlight and you can get it from a diet. And it's probably very important which type you have because if you have the wrong type, that might be quite dangerous. So I'm looking at two types, one which is a precursor, which is like pre-vitamin D, and one which is the active form of vitamin D and comparing them and trying to really see if the lungs itself can decide what to do with the vitamin D. Vitamin D, I think, really helps your body repair any damage and it's very important 
important that if we use vitamin D as a treatment, we don't overcome the body's own way of responding to damage. So therapies could involve either giving you back the type that normally circulates, that most of us are deficient in because we don't get enough sunlight, or it could involve giving us the active form locally where we need it. When trying to tell that apart, it's a very important question of which this work will contribute, but there's several other studies going on in our group looking at different forms, we'll put all the results together hopefully in the next couple of years and get an answer. And what are the wider implications of your findings for the medical profession in general, perhaps in terms of developments and treatments that it might lead to? Well, the beautiful thing about vitamin D is if we can work on the correct form, it's going to be a low-cost treatment, which actually not just will improve asthma, it's really important in any immune disease, but also with your bones, with your heart. Really, vitamin D is one of the key molecules, the key chemicals of the current century, trying to understand its role and trying to work out what we can do about the fact that we don't get enough sunshine and if we get too much sunshine we'll then get skin cancer which isn't great either. Yes. What do you find particularly rewarding about being in both camps, um, seeing patients and researching and what are the challenges? So I think the beauty about being in both camps is you can do research that's really targeted at the disease. It's very easy on the science side to research something that turns out to have no connection to the actual disease just to be very in cloud cuckoo land. Whereas when you're actually a clinician and a scientist you can make sure that your research is directed at the patient and will have real benefit. You can sort of imagine how in five, ten years time this is going to help your patient in clinic that you saw yesterday. Um, I'm Nadia Mikali and my research overall is mainly about eating disorders. The title of the research is The Incidence of Eating Disorders in the UK, Findings from the UK General Practice Research Database. Looking at this large database, which is really representative of the overall UK population, the study finds that between 2000 and 2009, there were more new diagnoses of eating disorders across the UK. Now, that's clearly very, very important because what that might mean is really two things. On the one hand, more people develop eating disorders. In some studies across the world that have shown that eating disorders are increasing. It might also mean that general practitioners are better at diagnosing eating disorders in 2009 than they were in 2000. The interesting thing about the study is that when we look at the breakdown of which eating disorders increase, the one that really increased both for females and for males is called eating disorder not otherwise specified. Basically, eating disorder not otherwise specified is a clinical eating disorder. You need to have all the symptoms of anorexia but one. Clearly, it is important we know that those disorders are increasing in the UK because that will impact on our understanding, but also whether we are providing enough services for people who might need them. My research might mean that we have to increase our provision for services that are more specialist and know more about eating disorders than a general psychiatric service. 
And often my greatest frustration in my scientific life is that I think in general the medical profession doesn't take eating disorders seriously enough. People think, oh, you know, eating disorders only affects a small number of people. And in fact, what we found, for example, that I think is very important is that about 3,500 girls every year in the UK are newly diagnosed and that is a huge amount. And how are the numbers distributed between males and females in terms of developing an eating disorder? Eating disorders in general are, are very gender patterned which means that females are at higher risk uh, than males so overall it's about 10 to 1, you know, 10 girls for one boy or 10 females for one male. I'm Shelley Potter and my research is looking at the feasibility of clinical trials in breast reconstruction. So breast cancer affects one in eight women and 40% of women who are diagnosed will need a mastectomy. Different types of reconstruction are broadly implants, which are just inserted under the muscle, flaps from the back or flaps from the tummy, and they all have slightly different risks and benefits. Having a mastectomy can have a dramatic impact on people's quality of life and what women decide to have depends on what women want to gain from their breast reconstruction. So I looked at how women made decisions for breast reconstruction, looked at the quality of the information available to women considering reconstruction and how decisions were made and also looked at the feasibility of doing clinical trials to gain high quality evidence in breast reconstruction. So I reviewed the literature and found that the literature was really quite poor quality in terms of helping women decide what type of breast reconstruction was right for them. And then I spoke to patients and healthcare professionals about how they made decisions about breast reconstruction, what they thought of the quality of information that was available and whether they would agree to participate in clinical trials. And what I found was that once they decided they wanted one type of reconstruction, they'd be happy to be randomised within that type, which is really useful for us in terms of designing future trials to improve the quality of information for women thinking about surgery. My research is leading on to a number of different projects. One of the projects called Bravo is to develop a core outcome set for breast reconstruction, which means that we get surgeons and patients together to decide on which outcomes of breast reconstruction are the most important that will be measured in all future research and audit studies, which will improve the quality of information to women in the future. And we're also working towards a clinical trial comparing a new form of implant-based reconstruction with the traditional form of implant-based reconstruction, which may be better for patients. And the information in this study is the basis for that study. And where have you presented your research? It's been presented all around the world, but this is the first proper academic meeting that it's been presented at, rather than a surgical meeting, so it's a slightly different emphasis. For you, what are the benefits of being a clinical researcher? I'm passionate about trying to make a difference, so that's for me is the benefit, that not only can I make a difference on an individual level to patients, managing them as I would clinically, through my research I can potentially make a difference to a much larger number of people and improve the outcomes. I'm Dr Rod Mitchell and we are interested in the effects of environmental chemicals on testicular development and reproductive health or the subsequent offspring. The results of this study might have implications in terms of determining the potential health effects of exposure to paracetamol during pregnancy. We are particularly interested in the effects of paracetamol on the development of the testis in the fetus and so we have a model system where we can test the effects of these chemicals on testis development. In rats, if we expose the testis to paracetamol, we find a reduction in 
in testosterone production and we are currently working on the effects of paracetamol in the human testis to see if these effects are also seen in humans. So the, the model system that we use to check the effects is uh, something called a xenografting approach and involves getting human tissue from fetuses and grafting them into a host animal in order for it to develop. During that period of development we can expose the tissue to various different potentially endocrine disrupting chemicals to determine the effects and this gives us a huge advantage in terms of looking at the effects on human tissue rather than the previous research which largely is focused on the effects in rodents which we know are significantly different. I expect that we will have an answer as to whether or not there's an effect on testosterone production, which is the biggest question in the next maybe six months or so. Further work on the mechanisms behind how that happens will, will take a lot longer. At the end of the room, I've just spotted Dimitrios Siasakos, and his poster is Improving Team Training in Acute Healthcare, Critical Synthesis of Seven Mixed Method Studies. So we have been looking at ways to improve patient outcomes and patient experience during and after obstetric emergencies using mixed method studies to identify the characteristics of effective teams and leaders and then use them in a comprehensive program of training to improve that management. So what did your research show? What did you find? What we have found is that clinical training works in improving outcomes and patient experience, particularly if you conduct training using patient actresses to make it more realistic and to remind people that they have to communicate with the patient when you have an emergency. And what kind of communication? It's exactly what we were interested in. So one of the seven mixed method studies was looking at identifying what we have to say to patients during an emergency to improve patient experience. We found it doesn't have to be long episodes of communication where you try to explain everything because often you don't have enough time. It was just brief sentences explaining three or four simple things that are actually important to explain to the rest of the team. And sometimes even if you didn't explain to the patient directly, as long as you kept the team informed by explaining everything loudly, team functioned better, but there was also improved patient experience, but also the partner or the family who were present at the time. And actually one of the criticisms is that explaining what is happening, what are you going to do is common sense. So it's surprising that these behaviors are often missing from frontline teams and it's so easy to address them with training. And when did you start rolling out the programmes, the training programmes? We have now been training for several years around the UK and around the world as well. Training in maternity has now actually been disseminated to most units in the UK. We started rolling the programme out about four or five years ago. In Africa we started last year, but we have been to other places. For example, the United States we started in 2008-2009. We've been to Australia, New Zealand countries like Somalia, glamorous places like the Solomon Islands, uh, we've been to Hong Kong, China. And as I said, it's not just a program of training, it's the principles of training. For example, in Zimbabwe, we're looking at the results now, but it already looks as if we can improve outcomes like maternal mortality, so whether women die or not. When we have the final analysis, what we need to see is, can we use the same model of training in other countries as well, but with differences, because obviously it's different how you train someone in the UK, it's different how you train someone in the developing world, but there are some common characteristics that you have to train in a realistic environment, in a team, because when you are faced with an emergency, you need to learn how to manage an 
an emergency as a team. So did the inspiration for this project come from your experience as a practitioner? I'm a clinical academic, so I'm working now 50% as a clinician and 50% in research. The advantage of being a clinician is that you identify problems as they happen, either from my own personal practice and experience or sometimes from national inquiries or from media or analysis within our own unit. If something goes wrong, we analyze it and we see how can we improve it. What changes do you envisage happening in your clinician career and related to research and how are you planning ahead to meet these? In terms of research, I think what is happening now increasingly is collaboration so between different research teams across the UK and teams around the world. You have to get a team of experts, clinical experts, social scientist experts, and approach the subject with mixed methods research. And it's going really well, so I'll keep you posted. In a couple of years' time, I will have an update on what's happening with that. My name is Catherine Sleeman. Essentially what I'm working on right now is using a very large data set, including all deaths in England over a several year time span. And my particular interest is dementia and I'm looking at where people with dementia die over a 10 year time span and looking at the factors that might be associated with dying in one place or another. Most people in this country would prefer not to die in hospital, but the sad fact is that a very large proportion do die in hospital. So we need to work out what is it that facilitates someone dying at home or in a hospice and what are the factors that might actually precipitate hospital admission. So I've been doing an analysis which isn't quite complete of this large data set looking at place of death and I've identified a few factors that are associated with dying in one place rather than another. The next step will be to look at well can we fix that if one factor means patients are very very unlikely to die at home is there a way of directing policy at that factor in order to improve those patients' chance of dying at home. What types of factors have you looked at? The sort of factors I've looked at are personal factors like age of the patient, the sex of the patient, the marital status, which is really important in terms of social support. I've also looked at regional factors. So do the patients live in an area which is deprived or affluent? Do the patients live in an area with lots of care home beds or with very few care home beds? Do the patients live in rural areas or urban areas. Also, it's really interesting to look at how trends are changing over time. If a certain factor influenced place of death in 2001, does it have the same influence in 2010 or actually has that melted away and something else has become more prominent? So there are three main sorts of factors that I'm able to look at. A different type of research would be needed and is needed to really drill down after this on what is the quality of those deaths and what influences that. What do you find particularly rewarding about being a clinician researcher? So combining clinical medicine with academic work is an extraordinary job and my bottom line is I love my job. I didn't love my job when I was a clinician 100%. It's not for everyone though. I find it's a really difficult job, especially if you have kids, as I do. So I have three jobs to juggle. I'm trying to be an adequate mother, a good clinician and an exceptional researcher and that's an incredibly difficult balance. 
but it's exceptionally rewarding and I adore my academic time and I feel extremely lucky to be employed to spend half of my working hours on something that I find intellectually stimulating. I think that that's very rare in a job but I would have to say it's hard. You never put your work down. You never completely switch off from your academic work. The last person I'm going to speak to is Tosan Okoro and his research is does muscle inflammation influence recovery of muscle strength and function in patients undergoing total hip replacement? So what's your research about? The research is trying to understand the recovery process in muscle. We assume that mm. because the hip is replaced and the pain goes away that everything is more or less okay but we know that by the time they have the hip operation there's inflammation, there's pain. If they have functional deficit they have reduced strength in their muscles so we're trying to see if we can characterize what happens around that hip joint but this is just the first step in the process of trying to get a better understanding of what actually happens around the hip joint itself during that recovery period from the operation. This particular study is part of a larger study, so we, we were trying to see whether a home-based exercise program could improve muscle strength and function. So the patients are part of a larger study looking at whether if you had a home-based exercise program and competitive um, standard physiotherapy, they would improve in their strength and function. We know that if people have low function, they stay low function, so the idea is to try and get those people who are low have better function. And what are your findings, broadly speaking? So we found that there is a relationship between the inflammation going down and the strength of the muscle before and after. There's also a trend as well if you took the change from before your operation and six weeks afterwards. But in terms of statistics, they're not significant, but there is a trend to correlation. So I think we don't fully understand these mechanisms at the moment. So there's more work, I think, that needs to be done in this particular area to understand it's better. Offering some concluding thoughts on the day, I caught up with Richard Horton, editor of the UK medical journal The Lancet. He started by explaining why The Lancet supports the spring meeting. I've been with the Academy since it was created in 1998. You know, the Academy has made the most incredible influence in UK medicine in its very short life. But the Academy will only survive and thrive by the support and participation of all of its fellows. So as somebody who's part of the Academy, I want to see the Academy do really well. And the Lancet can be a platform for the work of the Academy and the science that the Academy is supporting to be transmitted and amplified worldwide. So that's why I want to be involved with this. I want to take UK biomedical science, which is second to none in the world, and use the Lancet as a way of transmitting it. The spring meeting over today has just been phenomenal. I think the quality, the depth and the breadth of the science has been absolutely superb. We've seen wonderful presentations, great posters. You know, this shows that UK biomedicine has the most incredible future. And we need to go out and tell the world about it because it's a great story about this country and we should be really proud of it. So I think for all the researchers who've come and presented today, first of all, it's a great discipline to come and present their work, have it critiqued and debated by their colleagues and more senior academics. Second, it's an opportunity for them to network amongst each other. Science is now interdisciplinary. It depends upon teams. You know, the days where a single scientist worked in a lab and got a Nobel Prize are long over. And you need to create those opportunities for young people to network. So I think on those grounds, that's why this kind of meeting is so important. Face-to-face -face presentation, it's been a great day. I'd like to underline two points about the research because I think it shows us two particular strengths of UK biomedicine. The first is the fantastic 
fantastic range of universities that we have in this country and we are so lucky and we should never forget how fortunate we are. We have a wonderful broad group of universities across the country that are doing world-class science. These universities need to have government and public support so at every opportunity we should celebrate their success. The second area where we're extremely lucky is the again the depth and breadth of our funding organisations. In many countries even in Western Europe we, we see a landscape where the funding of biomedical research isn't so easy. We have fantastic funding. We have got hundreds of millions of pounds being invested in research. At this meeting there are well over 50 funders supporting this work. So I think we have a culture medium, so to speak, for research in the UK, again, which is second to none, and that's why we produce these great researchers. What you've seen today is an incredibly diverse range of subjects across all medical specialties, but I think what typifies research today, which is different from even 10 years ago, is that if you want to do really good research, you need to have multiple methods, multiple disciplines working together. Whether it's somebody who's a molecular biologist with an imaging scientist, with a clinician, to do great work, you have to have a mix of skills. And I think that's what has really come out today. And why, again, our universities and our NHS are such good culture media for that, because they promote that interdisciplinarity. And I've got to say, the verdict on today is 10 out of 10. Well, that concludes a very interesting and insightful day at the spring meeting, which has highlighted the interdisciplinary nature and the rich variety of research that trainee clinician academics are carrying out across the UK and their valuable contribution to UK biomedical science. You can access a diverse range of podcasts of academic research via the Pod Academy website at www.podacademy.org.